This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers from WKYT. I'm Bill Bryant. The primaries were this past Tuesday. It was a highly unusual election, to be sure, and we'll be talking to Kentucky Secretary of State Michael Adams shortly. But first, Kentucky students last stepped foot in their classrooms back in March, continuing their education at home and online with MTI days. The virus seems to be letting up, but we still need to take a lot of precautions, and the start of the next school year continues continues to approach. Yesterday, uh, state leaders laid out some of their guidance for our school districts, and Dr. Kevin Hubb is the superintendent of Scott County Schools. He joins us now to talk about uh, what is to come there. I will just uh, make note before we uh, get started that uh, your school board recently noted your strengths in managerial and strategic leadership, so uh, congratulations for that. As we welcome well, Thank you, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Mr. Superintendent, I, you know, there was some frustration in education and from parents and confusion about a plan going forward. Do you feel like what has been announced uh, by the governor and, of course, the Kentucky Department of Education now gives superintendents like yourself and school districts a direction? Well, let me begin by saying that the collaboration between Governor Bashir and Commissioner Brown has been the best I've seen it in my career. We have been informed throughout the process. And yesterday, I think there were two things that provided me and other superintendents with great clarity. We now understand that when we cannot social distance in our schools, students and staff will be required to wear masks. We also understand that before students enter school, they must have their temperature checked. And those two things provided a lot of clarity and will help us in making our decisions moving forward. You know, you have students a lot of the day. I mean, if things are normal uh, from the, the before the start of school, when they get on those uh, buses, uh, they also then come to school, they have meals there, uh, they're at school, and then you hope to uh, safely get them home, obviously. Uh, so a typical school day is going to uh, have a lot of uh, temperature checks and masks and process going on there, isn't it? It is certainly going to be, and we've heard the governor talk a lot of times about what's going to be the new normal, and uh, it's just going to be that case. Now, we've looked at uh, the student size in each of our classrooms. We looked at the square footage of our classrooms, and in many of those cases, we will be able to social distance our students, and as we heard yesterday, when we can keep our students six feet apart, we're not going to be required to wear masks, but certainly when students move, on the move, wear a mask, there's going to be lots of mask wearing. Will school meals have to be done differently? There are a couple different options that are available to us to do school meals. But what uh, gives me great satisfaction is that the food service directors across Kentucky have really expressed their desire to make sure that we feed students healthy meals. And I don't think any of us want to do grab-and-go lunches for an entire school year. That's certainly one of our options. But there are also options that allow us to feed children our regular healthy breakfasts and lunches, and then we can have them eat socially distanced from other students. We'll simply do like we're seeing in some of our restaurants. We'll put tape across certain seats and lunchroom tables. We may have to use auxiliary gyms and hallways for our students to eat, and then eating in the classroom is also an option. 
How do you anticipate uh, kids will handle this? Uh, obviously, it'll be uh, different depending uh, on the individual. Uh, will you be keeping an eye out for uh, those who, uh, you know, may have a great deal of difficulty with this kind of a scenario? Well, I think as we saw with the senior class of 2020, students are resilient. And I'm confident that uh, students listen to the instructions given by their teachers and staff and I think that they are going to accommodate the need because they understand that what's best for everybody is that we take these precautions of social distancing and wearing masks if we have to. Most schools want to keep that option of going online quickly if you have to and would you be in a position to transition quickly to NTI days if if that has to be the case? Yes, we can. And our professional development offerings that we've provided teachers this summer have solely focused on getting better at virtual learning. In Scott County, when we start school, we're going to start school with in-person classes. Now, we understand that for safety reasons, some parents will choose not to send their children to school. And we do not begrudge any parent for making a decision based on the safety of their children. So those parents and those students will pre be provided a virtual option for their learning. So a, a child would be considered present uh, in school if they are learning by NTI and they have simply chosen to do that rather than come to school? Or the parents yes, made that Yes, that's choice. true. Yes, and in, in Scott County, our plan was always during the first week of July to survey our shareholders. Of course, many superintendents and districts have done that already in the Commonwealth. and. Uh, much of them have shared their data and it's been good data for us to look at. I think what's going to be advantageous for us is having our survey go to our shareholders next Wednesday, a week after the announcement that we heard from the governor. So I think that parents and students and staff and community members will be able to use that information to help give us more guidance as we get closer to the start of school. There's apparently uh, talk of lessening the weight given to uh, attendance as to how schools are funded in Kentucky. Uh, do you support that going forward? Well, I think in these new normal times, that is really the only practical approach to ensure equitable state funding to the districts across Kentucky. Philosophically, I have always preferred average daily attendance versus average daily membership because I think that incentivizes children to come to school, and that's where they learn best. But again, in this new normal, I think it's only practical to continue equitable funding across the state if we don't use the requirement of average daily attendance. Knowing the plan now and what uh, the state uh, hopes to accomplish and what uh, the local superintendents are expected to uh, pull off and, and obviously your uh, faculty and staff and, and uh, your whole team will be involved in this, do you have lingering concerns uh, heading into this year? Are there some unanswered questions that you have? Well, I think the biggest question that we're going to have is where our students are going to be instructionally relative to last March when we last finished. I think it's just expected that it'll take a week or two or three for us to understand and for our teachers to understand where each of their students are relative to the learning that occurred last year. Mm -hmm. So I think this year is going to be another entirely different year from normal. Um, although that's going to be a challenge, again, we've spent the entire summer working on virtual learning and how to address those instructional and curricular needs for our students. What is likely ahead for high school sports? 
That is a great question. And we heard the commissioner talk yesterday that uh, Commissioner Tackett and his team are constantly asking questions of local health officials and state health officials and government officials. I'm confident that they're going to use data to determine what's going to be best for our high school athletics. And uh, so at this point, uh, that remains to be ironed out, obviously. Uh, Mr. Superintendent, the, the recent uh, protests and social unrest in the country have come at a time when, uh, when school is out and at the end of a, a most unusual uh, year, as you were talking about. Do you anticipate that there will be uh, some adjustments in the way uh, historical events and, and social studies are, are taught and learned going forward in, in light of, uh, of, of what we have seen in recent weeks? So I think it's, it's possible that national groups may get together and amend some of the national standards like we have seen over the last couple of years. But you know, um, our teachers understand the importance of diversity. They understand the importance of teaching uh, multiple cultural perspectives. And certainly um, we have very culturally aware leaders in our schools. So I'm confident that in Scott County, and I'm really confident that across the Commonwealth, our teachers and leaders and staff uh, really appreciate the diversity that every one of us in Kentucky brings to our classrooms. You have some exciting news uh, there in Scott County that uh, as of uh, late last week, the uh, school board has approved and uh, there is going to be uh, something new you want to tell us about. You know, I'm excited to say that uh, earlier at a school board meeting, we have started the process to uh, construct a brand new Scott County High School located on our school farm. This is not gonna require a new tax levy. And uh, really the board has always been very cognizant about equity for our high school students. And uh, as beautiful as Great Crossing is, um, and we're able to, based on the fiscal management of our board of education, move forward with plans for a new Scott County High School. And if everything goes well, we'll be able to open that in the fall of 2023. Where will it be located? In Scott County, uh, boards before us were very thoughtful and purchased a, a school farm that's more than 80 acres, and it's essentially going to be at the intersection of our new final section of the Georgetown Bypass. And what will happen to the uh, old Scott County High School? Our current plans would be that Scott County Middle School would move into, well, at, at that point, we will re-renovate uh, what's a 30-year-old Scott County High School. And you're able to pull this off without uh, an additional tax, right, uh, beyond uh, what uh, was done over there to, uh, to, to build the other school. Right. The community was so supportive during my first year in Scott County. And we did successfully levy a recallable nickel. And through the fiscal management of my team and, and really our Board of Education, uh, we're able to move forward on this project. We're not able to, we're not going to be required to cut any corners and we're gonna be able to provide an outstanding facility for our Scott County High School students without any new uh, recallable nickel tax levy. I wanna give you just a second to uh, uh, talk to your, your and other faculty and staff out there across Kentucky who uh, have really had to innovate and, and move quickly and make so many adjustments this year. And I know that uh, every school person I talk to is so appreciative of uh, the teamwork they have seen in these very uh, trying times? I think that during the governor's conference on Wednesday, especially when we saw Commissioner Kevin Brown, you could not hear him speak and watch him speak and not see that he was overcome with emotion of pride, really, 
of pride in how the teachers and staff and leaders in Kentucky, and I will also say the students and their parents, have made this the best possible outcome that we could. And certainly as a school superintendent, like my other peers across the Commonwealth, I couldn't be more proud to be in my job and more proud of the people that I have the opportunity to lead. As always, we appreciate you talking with us. Dr. Kevin Hubb, the superintendent of the Scott County School System. Thanks for being Thank here. You. And stay with Thank us. You. The Kentucky Secretary of State, Michael Adams, will talk about this most unusual primary that we're really kind of still in the middle of because we don't know all the results. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. We welcome you back to Kentucky Newsmakers. So good to have you here on WKYT. Kentucky's unusual June, mostly mail-in election is over, except the final count that we still await. Because of concerns about the coronavirus pandemic, Kentucky's Democratic governor and Republican Secretary of State came up with a plan for this unusual type of primary. To vote by absentee before, Kentuckians have had to long swear an affidavit that they would be out of town or otherwise unable to go to the polls during that 12-hour window on a Tuesday. But COVID-19 forced a change. The primary was delayed. It was mostly done by mail-in absentee again. The turnout, historic it appears, and some say they would like to see this temporary fix become permanent. Will coronavirus dictate that we do some version of this again in November? Kentucky Secretary of State Michael Adams is joining us on Kentucky Newsmakers. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back. Well, Mr. Secretary, how do you think the primary went overall? I couldn't be happier. I'm so proud of uh, the Democrats and Republicans who came together, uh, public officials, the governor, me, uh, our teams, the State Board of Elections, our county clerks across the state, our poll workers, came together to make this a success. Uh, I'm very proud of my office and my team. This is the hardest challenge any new Secretary of State's had in 200 years. Uh, we just got sworn in here. Uh, when I came into this office, uh, not even six months ago, it was known for one thing, scandals. Today, we're known for being a national leader and how to conduct an election during a pandemic. I'm really proud of that. Do you, at this point, uh, have an idea as to whether we did to make some history with the turnout? Here's one thing I'm confident in telling you is we have more votes cast in this primary than we have ever had cast before in any primary in Kentucky. In terms of the proportion of registered voters, I don't know if we hit a record yet or not. I won't know until all the ballots are counted. Uh, we're still waiting on some ballots that could have been mailed on election day to actually arrive. That takes a few days. So I'll, I'll have some harder numbers later this week or the first of next week. But there's no question that we're on track to have the most raw number, in terms of raw number of votes, the highest ever. We're looking at about 1.1 million. Uh, that's well in advance of what we had, even in 2008, when we had a competitive primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. So you would say, I would take it, that uh, despite the fact that there were uh, complaints of voter suppression, most of those from uh, folks outside of Kentucky, uh, that uh, those claims ring hollow. Absolutely. And I, I want to commend Governor Bashir and the Kentucky Democratic Party the Louisville NAACP, they all agreed with me that this myth of voter suppression was just a farce. It was being pushed by out-of-state interests with their own agendas, and it just wasn't real. Uh, you don't have vote suppression when you've got more votes than have ever been cast before. I took a big risk uh, defying many of my own party to provide more uh, voter access uh, in this campaign, and unfortunately the reward I got for that was being called a, a Jim Crow racist vote suppressor. But I appreciate the Democrats here in Kentucky pushing back against that false narrative.
As you look back uh, at the election and, and, and how things uh, went, uh, w there were some problems, obviously, long lines in Lexington, uh, Louisville, uh, a judge had to order the polls to remain open later, people banged on the doors over there. Does that represent uh, any kind of failure in the system or does it represent things that can be tweaked? Well, the things that you saw that folks were complaining about are things you see in every single election ever. Uh, you always have lines on election day in some places. Uh, Lexington had lines uh, in 2018. Uh, back then it was called a sign of voter enthusiasm. <laughs> That's when we had a Democrat secretary of state. Now supposedly it's a sign of voter suppression. Uh, so life's not fair in politics, unfortunately. But that was a localized issue in Lexington. They, we assisted them. Uh, things got better. The lines got down. But to put this in perspective, you had lines in Washington, D.C., people waiting until 1 in the morning to vote, 1 a.m. Uh, the lines in Lexington, which were the only lines in the state on Election Day, were a third of what they were in other states that voted before we did. So it's all relative. Let's keep that in mind. Do you think the ease of voting this way uh, is a part of what drove up the turnout? And is the genie out of the bottle on mail-in voting in Kentucky? Are folks, uh, did they like this so much that they're going to want it to remain? Well, uh, to, your, to your first point, uh, I do, I will take uh, with the governor some of the credit uh, for the high turnout. I think making it easier to vote means more people vote. I think that's just common sense. Uh, but partly it's external factors. Partly you've seen turnout higher across the country. It's not just Kentucky. Uh, it's other states, too. We're seeing record turnout in other states, too. So I won't take certainly all the credit. I'll take some of it. Uh, I'm proud to make it easy to vote. In, in terms of what voters are expecting for the future, uh, I, I honestly don't know. I took a lot of heat for what I did. Uh, I still am taking it. Uh, I don't know really what the public thinks right now universally, uh, whether they want this for the future or not. But I will tell you this. I don't have the legal authority to mandate this for the fall unless we're in a state of emergency. I have emergency powers to reach an agreement with the governor who also has emergency powers. If we think we need to do this in the fall uh, because we have a, a second wave of coronavirus, then we're able to do that legally. But I can't do it just because people like it. It would take legislation next year from the General Assembly to change our election laws. Well, let me ask you, Mr. Secretary, you know, the, the New York Marathon uh, was set for November. It's been canceled this week. Some fall events in Kentucky are already being called off that are close to election time. Uh, do you fear we are going to have to do the November election in a different way? Well, I'm going to be statesmanlike, uh, and I'm going to do whatever is necessary to protect the public health and protect voter access, but I'm just not prepared in June to project what November is going to look like. That's four and a half months away. If you'd asked me four and a half months ago, what's the June primary look like? I would have said, what's our primary in yeah. June? We have primaries in May in Kentucky. Uh, so it's just not it's just not right uh, for me to make any sort of recommendations to the governor or reach any agreement with the governor in June for what November looks like. The governor is saying we should have mail-in voting for the fall, but he's also reopening the schools. He's reopening public pools and so forth. The derby is on. Uh, so we can't have one message that we're on lockdown for the election, but another message that we're reopening Kentucky. It's one or the other. Just, uh, you know, in response to some of what we're hearing, of course, there are some who have uh, uh, grave concerns about uh, the potential for voter fraud, uh, you know, if the ballots are out there and could potentially be uh, harvested or tampered with or filled out by somebody else. And uh, Dr. Josh Douglas, an election law expert and author at the University of Kentucky, advocates uh, sending every registered voter a ballot and eliminate the application process and just make it that easy. So you have these competitive uh, uh, kinds of views uh, on this issue. Again, uh, to your point, it will be uh, legislation if it comes to that. 
but uh, do you have a feeling one way or the other about uh, the approach to mail-in absentee voting? Well, I think it's a last resort that's necessary to keep people safe. And again, I've been willing to, to risk my own uh, political standing uh, within my own party to, to push something that I thought was necessary to protect human life. I'm proud of the fact that that was successful. Uh, that said, uh, I'm not advocating that we always do it, and here's why. It's extremely expensive to conduct uh, absentee balloting uh, expansively. The only way that we were able to do this for this election is very generous federal and state funding that will go away at some point. It was tied to coronavirus response. So, it, look, if the legislature is for this, I respect that, and I'll implement it, and I'll make it work, absolutely. Uh, but that said, it's a policy choice. And if we're going to spend more money on our elections, we're going to have to cut something else. Who's going to cut education or health care to pay for mail-in balloting? I just don't think that's going to happen. If this uh, you know, does happen again and we have to go at it again, are there some discussions you would want to have uh, ahead of time and make some tweaks to the process, even if we have to do this in November? Well, sure. I'll tell you one thing that absolutely will not ever happen again is the consolidation uh, of polling places uh, so radically as what we saw for this primary. Uh, the governor and I, in our agreement, gave the counties flexibility and deference to write their own plans. Uh, it never occurred to him or to me that they would have a county like Jefferson with 615,000 registered voters in one polling location. I took a lot of heat for that, even though I publicly opposed what they decided to do. I became the face of it, uh, not fairly. Same thing in Fayette County. Uh, that will not happen again. Any future agreement I reach with the governor will have specific limitations on the abilities of the counties to so radically consolidate their polling locations. That's the first lesson learned. And look, I'm really happy that it went so smoothly, and I commend those counties and all the counties for the great work they did. But the bottom line is we're not going to do that again. When and how will we know the final results of the primary election? Well, of course, you've seen, uh, you've seen some in-person totals uh, from around the state. By state law, the counties are supposed to pro uh, provide in-person election results, tape them to the door of the election sites on election night, but those are just the in-person numbers. Uh, the in-person voting on election day was only about 14 or 15 percent of all the votes cast. Uh, so we're still waiting on about seven out of eight votes to be tabulated. We're going to announce that, uh, those results, all results in the state. Uh, from my office on Tuesday night, uh, June 30th. Uh, if we have results before that, we'll make those available to the public. I promised I, I would be transparent with public information like vote totals. So whatever the counties give us in advance of that, we'll provide. Uh, but I don't expect that we're going to have Jefferson or Fayette counties until the hard deadline of, of June 30th, just for the reason that the number of absentee ballots is so overwhelming. It's very logistically hard to process them all. You're talking about some 300,000 absentee ballots in those two counties alone. Yeah. It takes time to run them through the machines, to open them up and, and process them. So my expectation is not to make any projections in any statewide race, certainly, uh, before the hard deadline of June 30th. Mr. Secretary, a few seconds left. Uh, there will be no speeches at Fancy Farm this year. I know you uh, grew up in that area, and uh, you've told me you've been there like 20 times or so to, yeah. uh, to the picnic. Uh, this, of course, is uh, for safety. You got to take part in that tradition last year. Uh, is it uh, you know, sad to see that go by the wayside for this summer? Sure. Look, I'll be the last person to question the judgment of anyone who takes an action to keep people safe. And so I commend the Fancy Farm organizers. I'm sure they're upset that they had to make this hard decision. This is a tradition going back over 100 years. Uh, but you got to keep people safe. That's what I've done, the governor's done, and they've done, and I, I commend their decision. But I, I'm going to miss being there. I really love Fancy Farm. 
We appreciate you uh, speaking with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. And we hope you will stay with us on Kentucky Newsmakers. More campaign 2020 coverage in just a moment. We welcome you back to Kentucky Newsmakers. This past Tuesday, voters were casting ballots not only here in Kentucky, but also in New York and Virginia. Mississippi and North Carolina also held runoff races. But some of the results, as they are here in the Commonwealth, are still up in the air. Our national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, explains. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. Mail-in voting skyrocketing in the latest string of primaries. Many Americans avoiding crowded polling centers amid the coronavirus pandemic. New York and Kentucky still receiving mail-in ballots. They won't have results for several days, maybe even weeks. In New York, more than 1.7 million absentee ballots were requested. Compare that to the 2016 primaries when less than 160,000 were requested. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, Roughly 890,000 voters applied for absentee ballots. To put that in perspective, about 670,000 people total voted in the state's 2016 primary. These numbers, just a possible preview of November's presidential election. Many lawmakers and governors pushing for expanded mail-in voting to attempt to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. As it stands now, nearly 30 states are reporting an increase in new coronavirus cases. But not everyone supports mail-in voting. President Trump insists it could lead to massive election fraud. The Democrats are also trying to rig the election by sending out tens of millions of mail-in ballots using the China virus as the excuse for allowing people not to go to the polls. Will they be forged? Who is signing them? Who's signing them? What, are they signed at a kitchen table and sent in? Will they be counterfeited by groups inside our nation? The president has not offered any evidence to back up these concerns, and Democrats are pointing to Oregon to refute his claims. Since 2000, Oregon has held all mail-in elections. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 11.30 on WKYT. Well, that's Kentucky Newsmakers. We want to thank you very much for joining us. I'll remind you that we'll see you bright and early this week for WKYT this morning. We start at 4.30, so we're up when you're up. Follow us on KY Newsmakers, Kentucky Newsmakers on Twitter, and we'll bring you updates along the way. You make it a good week ahead.